believe today that victory is coming. I know sometimes it's hard. Sometimes you think, you don't know where I'm at. You don't know what I'm going through. I don't feel like there's a whole lot of victory in my life right now. But the Bible says that our God is coming. So that's Jeremy. Yeah. Okay. And hell in the grave. So even if. I don't get victory over some of the troubles in this life. Victory is on its way. And this Sunday we're going to wake up on the other side of the rest. Every time you're going to follow the troubles and trials and tribulations, but the people have conquered all. against God. 
They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, came upon him and caught him, brought him to the council, and set up false witness, which said, This man ceases not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. But we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. Now, for the sake of time, I, I'm not going to give you Stephen's sermon, but that's basically what he did. He started to preach. They hauled him before the council. He had a captive audience, and so he began to go through the law. He began to go through the Old Testament and basically do what Peter did on Pentecost, was he preached to them Jesus. But when he got to the end, the response was different than what it was on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 7, all the way down to verse 54, says, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart of Pentecost too, but this time, they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. It said, Behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. They cried out with a loud voice, they stopped their ears, and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stole his coin. It would appear that this really was the end of this event in Scripture. Stephen's time on the scene had come, and he had testified he'd be a witness of the Lord, and now he is dead. But Scripture adds one detail that would become particularly significant as the New Testament unfolds. Because with Stephen now laid there dead, the Lord moves on Luke to write down. And the witnesses laid their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. Just like they the laid down their clothes here. at the feet of Saul. The camera's of Saul. We're preaching for a little while this morning of another man's coat. Another man's coat. Would you lift up your hands and worship the Lord with me? Oh God, there is no God with you. There is none like you, Jesus. We lift up your holy name. There is no other name but like the name of Jesus. God, we give you glory today. We ask the Lord to let your glory fill this house. Let it change us. Let it transform us. Let it fill our souls with power. Eternal Spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing for the word of the Lord. Amen. The scripture makes sure that we take note of this particular detail that, in all honesty, had nothing to do with the sermon that Stephen preached. It had nothing to do with with the false charges laid against him and, and his response to that and the fact that, that this great man had recently come into a ministerial role now lay dead. It really had nothing to do with all that. And it had much more so to do with the one 
that had the clothes laid at his feet. Because we later find out a whole lot more about this man that was there. So, if you think about this, the Bible says that they laid down their clothes. They, they threw down their coats at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. The overwhelming majority of the time in the world in which we live, our clothes speak volumes about who we are. Or at least they speak about who we want people to think we are. One or the other. Our clothes speak volumes about who we are. If you, if you walk down the down the halls of Walmart, you see somebody wearing a, a suit and tie, you're probably going to assume they're either a preacher on their way to church, or you're going to assume that you know, they're a banker or some kind of, you know, somebody in financial services, because the, that's the industry, those are the jobs that they usually expect somebody to wear a suit and tie, even though in America there aren't many of those left. But, but you probably make that assumption. They're either on their way to church, or that's what they do for a living. If you see a guy, you know, coming somewhere, he's wearing coveralls and he's covered in some kind of grease, you probably think he's a mechanic, he, he's worked on machinery, he's got tools, he does things that, that get all that grease on him. His, his clothes tell you a little bit about him. And this is Forsyth, Georgia. We live in the public safety capital of the state, so there's an awful lot of folks that you see walk around in every place with, with golf shirts on that have badges on them and and pistols and magazines around their belt, you pretty much could deduce the guy's a cop somewhere, girl's a cop somewhere. They're in, they're in public safety. You see somebody wearing camo and boots, you're going to assume, well, they're, they're a soldier. You know, they're National Guardsmen. or they're, 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 they're somebody in the military. We, we can go on all day long with all different kinds of examples, but, but you get the point. You understand that the clothes that we wear tell the world a lot about who we are which really doesn't make any sense in the world in which we live, that we are the children of God. We are ambassadors of heaven, and yet our world teaches we're not supposed to look like different than anybody else. It absolutely makes no sense whatsoever. If we don't look different, if we don't dress different, if we don't act different, then how in the world is the world going to know we are different? How are they going to find us if we look just like everybody else? But that's another message for another day. That's not the message for this morning. In the Bible, in biblical times, perhaps outside of the priestly garments, outside of, of what you would see the high priest wearing, if you ventured into the temple grounds on any particular day, perhaps outside of that, there would be no article of clothing that would be more you know, particularly significant and telling than what we find in the Old Testament that's called the mantle of the prophet. And I know some of you, you've been in Sunday school all the way in your life. You understand what I'm talking about. In the Old Testament, there are times that you would read about a prophet wearing a mantle. So go with me to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 28. I want you to see a little bit of this to, to kind of take you where I'm going to take you this morning. If somebody had one of these things on, it told somebody, this guy's a prophet. 1 Samuel, chapter 28 12. We find that Samuel, the prophet's dead and golden, and Saul is visiting a, uh, I don't know what you call him, a witch, basically. Somebody who can try to drum up the dead in some way. He's trying to figure out what he needs to do about himself, what he needs to do about his country. He doesn't have Samuel anymore. So he goes to this woman, the Bible calls him a familiar spirit, 
It says, And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried with a loud voice. And the woman spake to Saul, saying, Why hast thou deceived me? For thou art Saul. She thought she was in trouble. And the king said to her, Be not afraid. For what sawest thou? The woman said unto Saul, I saw God descending out of the earth. And he said unto her, What form is he of? Tell me what you see. And she said, An old man cometh up, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel. And he stooped with his face to the ground, and he bowed himself. All it took, all it took was her to say, He's got his head covered with a mantle. Saul knew who was there. He knew who it was that this woman saw that she had seen the prophet Samuel. That's all it took. Back in that day, you know, if you wanted to have a career as a prophet, you better start mantle shopping. You know, you're gonna have eventually if you're gonna be the guy, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to have a mantle. I, I probably mentioned this before, but but a number of years ago, I'm sure it's not this way anymore, but a number of years ago, I believe it was IBM. If you were going to even have an opportunity to get a job there, it was either IBM or GM, I can't remember which one, but big company, you know about You know, if you were going to get a job there, you had best show up in a navy blue suit and a white shirt and a blue tie. It was just expected. You've done your homework. You understand that's what they wore to the office. And if you showed up in anything else, the interview was as good as over. Because that was basically their, their un, you know, unspecific, their, that was their uniform. That's what you had to wear. That's what everybody wore. Because that signified ideal guys wearing blue suits. That's what they wear to the office. Back in this day, if you were the prophet, you had a mantle. You had this specific mantle. And now, now, the word mantle in Scripture can, it doesn't necessarily only apply to a prophet. You know, the mantle is, is the outer garment, kind of the coat to, that you would wear over the top of your clothes. And, and so it could be used to describe other people's clothes as well. But obviously there was something unique about this when the prophet had it. And it most believed that it was the material that it was made out of, that it was made out of animal skins, that it was a... A rough garment, not a smooth garment. It was something that really would bring comfort to your skin when you put it on. And it signified this man is the prophet. That's probably why, you know, John the Baptist attracted so much attention in his day. When he came out of the wilderness and he was wearing, you know, leather and camel's hair and all this kind of stuff, they realized, oh, this guy's got to be a prophet. It was a commonly known thing that when you wore this kind of mantle, it meant that you were the prophet of God. You were the prophet of God. And so John the Baptist, you know, would have people talking about, hey, is this Elijah? What is going on? Because he's dressing just like that great prophet of Israel, Elijah. Where do we get all that? Well, it's in the Old Testament too. First Kings chapter 19 and 13, just one verse. says, and it was so when Elijah heard it, this is when he's up on the mountain with God, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the inner end of the cave. Behold, a voice came to him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? It was what defined the prophet. It was what defined Elijah. The mantle or the coat symbolized what and who he was. It represented his office, it represented his calling, and it represented where he was headed in life. When you were the prophet, you were called to live a different kind of life than everybody else. You don't believe that? Read a few of those prophetic books in the Old Testament, and you might think twice about asking God to make you a prophet. I mean, 
Folks, you've got to wear underwear that got buried in the ground for a couple years. Just because the Lord wants to make a point. You know, when you wore the mantle of a prophet, your life was going to go down a different path than everybody else's. You weren't going to be living in the city all the time with all the comforts and modern technologies that were available. You weren't going to wear the softest and the best clothes that were there. You were called to a life of hardship. You were called to a life of dedication and commitment to God until he was done with It signified who you were and where you were headed in life. In just a little while, that same chapter, 1 Kings chapter 19, you know, Elijah's up on the mountain, he's kind of whining to God about how nobody else is serving him, and he's the only one that's left, and, and, and he just wants to die, he doesn't want God to fool him anymore, he just wants him to move on, and, and God has to correct him and say, I'm not done with you yet, I'm not finished with you, you have other things to do, so get back down from the mountain and go do what I'm sending you to do. And so, as he goes along his way, he starts doing what God told him to do. And we get to verse 19, it says, So he departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he with the twelfth. And Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. He took the mantle and he put it over Elisha. Now, Elisha was no dummy. Uh, some believe that he'd been educated in the schools of the prophets. I don't know if that's the case or not. But, but he was Hebrew enough. He knew what this meant. He knew that his life was about to change. He knew that everything was going to have to be different because the mantle had been put upon him. He'd been called to change the course of his life. Undoubtedly, you know, he knew that. Because in the next verse it says, He left the oxen. He ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I'll follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? And he returned back from him, took a yoke of oxen, he slew them, he boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen, gave to the people that they did eat, and he arose and went after Elijah and ministered to him. For Elisha, there was no turning back. I'm going down a different road. I'm not walking down that old road anymore. Whatever my plans were in the past, whatever my career was going to be, whatever my occupation was going to be, all that's changed now. I'm going to follow the prophet of God. There's no turning back from the calling of God. It's really not all that different for you and I either. The Lord himself said in Luke 9 and 62, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. God has called us to uproot ourselves from wherever we were, to turn around from whatever direction we were walking in and walk down this new path that he has called us to walk in. Elijah was giving up his old life. That's selling out. I'm going to kill the oxen. We're all going to have a big barbecue. And I'm going to barbecue them on the wood that I got from the plow. This was Elisha saying, I'm not plowing anymore. I'm not driving oxen anymore. This is not my life. You know, to live the life of a prophet required complete commitment. To wear that mantle meant selling out completely. You can't live for God without selling out. 
Many have tried and many have failed, but you can't come to church on Sunday and live for God and go back to the old life on Monday. You've been made a new creature. Your whole life has been reoriented. You have walked down a different path in life. From the moment that the mantle of God is put upon you, your whole life has to change. Now, meanwhile, back in Jerusalem a couple thousand years later, we come back around to the story of Stephen and Saul. Acts chapter 7, verse 58, I've already read it to you. Cast him out of the city and stole him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes to the young man's feet, whose name was Saul. They took off their coats, they took off their outer garments, and they laid them down at Saul's feet as they went off to stone Stephen. And so this is our introduction to the man called Saul. This is our introduction to the man that we better know as the Apostle Paul, one's just in one language, one's in the other. It's the same guy. It's who wrote most of the New Testament. It's who we become very well acquainted with throughout the book of Acts and all the epistles, or most of the epistles until nearing the end of the New Testament. It is this man named Saul, and it is the Apostle Paul that is standing there at the stoning of Stephen, standing there as this godly man who is becoming really the first Christian martyr of the church. This godly man of God that is being killed, and here is Saul standing there, holding on to everyone's coats, everyone's jackets. Here, hold my jacket, Saul. Here, watch out for my daughter, Saul. Here, make sure nobody takes this. We'll be back in just a few minutes. We've got to go and take care of this business of the church. We've got to go take care of this business of the council that has decided that this blasphemer's life has to come to an end. Hold the coat, Saul. Just watch after all of these things. But know this about this story. Saul was not just some bystander that happened to be there. It wasn't just a kid when it says young man. It doesn't mean a, a young man in the sense of a little kid. It, he, he wasn't just somebody that was walking by and said, hey, come over here and watch the coats. Saul was a part of all of it. We see that in the very next verse, chapter 8, verse 1, it says, and Saul was consenting unto his death. It is taught that Saul was a member of the Sanhedrin Council. It, was, it, it is believed that Saul, just like all of the rest of them, because it says he was consenting unto his death, he also would have cast the vote to take Stephen's life. One commentator even said that the word here almost implies joy or gladness, that he was happy about the fact that this blasphemer had been put to death. And we see what was really in his heart in just finishing out that verse. That time there was great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and of Samaria, except the apostles, and Saul was right there in the thicket. He was a ringley. He was a zealot. He was somebody that pursued this with all that he was. 
He was headed down that road in his life as hard and as fast as he could possibly get down that road. He was just a bunch of hard men. As those that had thrown rocks. But instead of throwing rocks, he was holding the coats. He was watching after the mantles. He was watching after the garments that they would have had upon themselves. But he was headed in the same direction that they were. Verse 3 says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Saul was a man on a mission. He was charging down the road that all the rest of the Sanhedrin was charging down. He was sold out to the idea that Christians needed to be killed. That believers of the way, as they were called, needed to have their way made into the prison house. Saul was proverbially wearing the same coat they were. He was wearing the same clothes that they were. He was living the same life that they were. Later in the New Testament, long after Paul's conversion, we see just a little bit about what he would have thought about himself in that day. Philippians 3 and verse 5, and he's doing it for a different reason here, but it still kind of makes the same point. Verse 5 says, Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning the seal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. When it came to being a Pharisee, when it came to being somebody on the Sanhedrin court, when it came to being an oppressor of Christians, when it came to hating and despising and trying to destroy the message of Jesus Christ, Saul had the letterman jacket. Saul was playing with the varsity squad. Saul was doing everything he could scratch and grab power to do to snuff out this movement. He was wearing the black members only jacket like all the other guys. So we always know that he was wearing the same coat as all these other men. All these other people. Until Acts chapter 9. Something happened. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest, desiring the letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of his way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound into Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. He fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto him, or the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the prince. It's hard for thee 
to go in the wrong direction. The image that is presented here is an image that they, if like, they would take what were called ox goads, basically spikes, all sticks with points on the end, and they would use them to poke at the ox to make him go in the direction that he wanted to go, and he wasn't going to go backward. Because backward meant getting stuck. Backward meant pain. Backward meant suffering. Going the wrong direction meant a hard, hard road. And so the Lord begins to speak to this man named Saul, who was as zealous as anybody else. He would have proudly worn the, the coat of who he was more so than anybody else in town. I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I come from the tribe of Benjamin. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel, but the greatest teacher of his day. He had all the degrees. He had all the certifications. He had all the experience. He was wearing that proverbial coat of pride. But then the Lord stops him in his path and basically says, Saul, you're going in the wrong direction. You're walking in the wrong direction. And as long as you walk in that direction, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's going to involve suffering. It's going to involve pain. How long is it that we live our lives at times trying our best to go in the wrong direction? How, how much time do we spend in our life trying to get our life right, trying to get our situation straight, trying to get everything lined up in the way that it ought to go, and we're doing it right against the grain of what God wants? And we keep wondering why it always turns out the way that it turns out. Now it's been said before that the definition of insanity is continuing to do the same thing you've always done and expecting a different outcome. How many times do we have to get poked with the stick before we realize it's not worth walking that way? How many messages does the man of God have to preach? How many times do we have to fall flat on our face in sin? How many times do we have to cry ourselves to sleep by our bedside at night before we realize there's no point walking in the way that I'm walking? I need to turn my life around. Saul didn't see any of this. He didn't see any of this coming. He put everything he had into what he was doing, unbeknownst to him that he was working directly against the God he claimed to love and serve. The God in his mercy doesn't allow us to miss the opportunity to repent, to miss the opportunity to change, to miss the opportunity to realize that not the way God wants me to walk. Just a little while ago, this man who assault would stand there and watch a godly man be killed for the testimony of Jesus Christ, holding the garments, washing the garments of all of his friends that were just like him. 
But on this day, he would realize that he was on the wrong side of the argument. He would realize that that Jesus whom he was persecuting was in fact just like they have the day of Pentecost. They would realize that they had slain King of Kings in the Lord's hands. And they would cry out unto Peter and say, Men and brethren, what shall we do? How do we fix this? How do we change this? How do we undo this? Now that I realize that I've been going in the wrong direction and I've been against the wrong one, what is it that I need to do to change? And what did Peter say? The very first word that came from his lips was to repent. Repent. It's not just being sorry about it. They were sorry about it in Acts chapter 2 verse 37. But verse 38 gives us the answer. Verse 38 tells us the solution to the problem that you destroyed the Savior. He said, you've got to turn around. Repentance is not just sorrow, but it's saying, I'm not walking that way anymore. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm not going to live the life that I used to live. I'm going to live for Jesus. Repentance is taking off the old coat and laying it down and saying, I refuse to be a part. That same Paul, he was talking about all those accolades he listed out. He finished it out with, I killed it all as Why would he say that? Because Saul was, he was in the club. He wasn't just a nobody. He wasn't just somebody that nobody ever heard of before. That lives on the backside of the alleyway somewhere. Nobody knows whether he's dead or alive tomorrow. This was someone that was in the club. He, he, he was in the group. He was in the clique. He was, he was in the accepted portion of society. He wore the same coat that the other guys wore. He wore the same leather jacket that the other guys wore. He wore the same uniform that the other guys wore. And he knew, perhaps better than anybody else, that the moment, the moment that he professed the same faith that he watched Stephen die for, all of that was gone. There's another place in Scripture where it talks about an unnamed group of people, but it says there are many that believed upon the Lord, but refused to acknowledge it because they were afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue. I can't lose my pew at the church. I'm on the deacon board. I can't give it up. I, I've got a good name. I've got a good reputation. I, I can't turn around and, and be a societal outcast. I, I've got a whole on. I've got the jacket. Yes. I had to put in four quarters to get this thing. I had to put in blood, sweat, and tears to get this thing. I can't lay it down. 
Lord says, Saul, go into town. You be a man of men and I should be talked to. I'll tell you what you need to know. Saul's blind. You can't go anywhere by yourself. They had to leave by the hand just to get into the town. Only what went through his mind that day. And the next. The I can't help but wonder when those eyes couldn't see. He didn't remember that day. Having stood in the council and heard Stephen preach Jesus. Had that picture in his mind. Looking down on the pile of coats. Where Posse had been. They were run off to kill him. Can't help but think. Stephen's words echoed in his ears. Words of the Lord. All. Now he had a revelation that perhaps all of them didn't have. Why don't Romans chapter 13. We know that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. We know that the Holy Ghost moved on the end of all to write down these words. We know that they're not just their thoughts. And they're not just their words. But we also know the author of many of these books. We know the ones whose hands took pen and paper and wrote them down. We know the men who would have had that function from the Holy Ghost to speak the words that got written down in these books. And it was the Apostle Paul that wrote this letter to the Romans. In chapter 13, in verse 14, which is a small portion of that scripture, he makes this analogy. But put ye all the Lord Jesus. Put ye all. See, in the day in which they live, she lived. Everybody would have known who he was. Sit without any clothes anymore. Most Jewish men would have had a particular garment old that would have symbolized their, their Jewishness. And it would have been their kind of their prayer shawl. But the members of the Sanhedrin would have probably had one that was more elaborate. Probably wider, probably longer. 
more recognizable. You're going nowhere without somebody knowing. Well, I know who that is. I know who he belongs to. I know what club he's in. All despair. I know he's harmless in it. I know he cast the books. God spared them all. He got the rock himself. But in the mind of Paul, he would have had that picture of a pile of jackets just like his. And I was thinking as a pile of clothes just like his that stood at his feet. Maybe we can look at Paul today. He said, Paul, is that what you want? Is that the life that you want? I'm telling you, Saul, it's going to be hard to live that life. It's going to be hard to go in that way. It's going to be hard to walk in those shoes. But that same Saul wrote, put on the Lord Jesus. I don't know where you've been walking. I don't know everything you've done. I don't know every place you've gone. But I know this. You can take it off today. And you can leave it at an altar. And you can call Jesus. It doesn't matter how many sins you've committed. It doesn't matter how much wrong you've done. You can take the jacket off. And you can lay it at the feet of the Lord. And you can put on this holiness. All these altars are open. Find the place of prayer. Find the place to lay down the old man. To lay down who he used to be. Put on the Lord Jesus. Put on the Lord Jesus today. Give everything to him. I want, when I come back, when I come back here, I'm going to turn it off. If I come back here, it's all going to be done.